praise be to God that he's seen fit to bring us together again to worship him, now to hear his word, chosen to carry Christ's name and cross. We'll be looking at verses 15 and 16 in chapter 9 of the book of Acts. Let's stand together for the reading of God's word. I'll read from verse 1 through to verse 25 of Acts chapter 9. Please listen very carefully because this is God's holy and infallible word. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. And then he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight. And inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him, so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose? so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and let him down through the wall in a large basket. And thus ends the reading of God's word. 
Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Commenting on this text, John Calvin said, Paul could not do this and have Satan quiet and the world to yield to him willingly. So his ministry, his ministry that God gave to him, he couldn't do it and have Satan be quiet and the world to yield to him willingly. Going on with Calvin. Therefore Luke adds that he shall be also taught to bear the cross. For the meaning of the words is, I will accustom him to suffer troubles, to endure reproaches, and to abide all manner of conflicts, that nothing may terrify him and keep him back from doing his duty. And when Christ makes himself Paul's teacher in this matter, he teaches that the more every man has profited in his school, the more able he is to bear the cross. For we strive against it and refuse it as a thing most contrary until he make our minds more gentle. Also, this place teaches that no man is fit to preach the gospel, seeing the world is set against it, save only he which is armed to suffer. Therefore, if we will show ourselves faithful ministers of Christ, we must not only crave at his hands the spirit of knowledge, and wisdom, but also of constancy and strength, that we may never be discouraged by laboring and toiling, which is the estate of the godly. Saul of Tarsus probably came from a fairly well-to-do family and led a fairly comfortable life up to that point, but probably not as comfortable as our lives are today in our world. And we see him going on an entirely different path than the one that he had been on before. A path that involved service in a way that he had never imagined and suffering unlike he'd ever thought that he would endure. And so we're going to look to him today and learn from him and of course trace back and consider Christ, the one who suffered and showed us the way to suffer. There'll be three main sections. First we'll look at Paul, Saul, as Christ's chosen vessel, and think, think together, consider together those words, and that he was chosen for service and for suffering, chosen to bear Christ's name, and chosen also to suffer for the sake of Christ's name. We'll consider these things together and examine our own lives in light of this. So first of all, the text says, he is a chosen vessel of mine. And this, of course, is what Jesus is saying to Ananias to reassure him that Saul's not just playing a trick on him and going to throw him in shackles as soon as he gets there. This word chosen is the act of picking out. It's the act of choosing one thing and not another. You have a range of options and you choose one thing. And it gets to the act of God's free will by which before the foundation of the world, God decreed his blessings to certain persons. Also, the decree made from choice by which God determined to bless certain persons through Christ by grace alone. And of persons, this word gets to the idea of God's elect. The idea of electing means to choose. God chose those whom he would save 
before the foundation of the world. So this general concept of choosing references God's free will, whereby he chose out of his, he chose out his elect to save them from their sins and to bring them into his kingdom of eternal life and righteousness. God chose them for this. And all of this glorious, what we call sovereign grace, theology of conversion, we've seen, haven't we, in Saul's Damascus Road experience. How how was he? Was he looking for God? He was a committed, God-hating villain. He was dedicated to his sin. He was blind to his miserable estate. And he needed to be born again from above by God's grace. That's what he needed. That's what we all need. Paul wrote about this in Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. Some years later in the 50s AD, over 20 years after his conversion, after much of his ministry, he said, We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. That idea of the called according to his purpose also gets into this category of God's choosing. Now to verse 29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he, that's Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. God chooses those whom he will save. They do not choose him before he chooses them. Next, let's ponder this a little bit. Why is this so? Why must this be so? The effects of sin leave us dead in our sin. The effects of sin leave us dead in our sin. Unable to even perceive our own guilt before God. Unable to see or to enter the kingdom of God. On our own. Spiritual death has very serious real life, real time consequences when it comes to relating to God. We could never choose God on our own. We don't have the capacity to choose God on our own. This is the impact of the fall upon mankind. And even if we could, even if we did have the capacity to see the Lord, to see our sin, we would not because we love our sin. We would not let go of our sin on our own. We don't have what it takes to do that. On our own, apart from Christ's work, we are in our very nature nothing but objects of wrath before God. I think I said a few weeks ago one of the application points would be to look in the mirror and say, you deserve hell apart from Christ. Apart from Christ, we have to remember what we deserve. Did I make this up? No. Paul wrote about this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Dead. And what was dead? Our spirits were dead. The body's alive. The spirit's dead. In which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. That's another way we can describe ourselves apart from Christ. We are sons of disobedience. Among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, 
fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Now how can that be? By nature, objects of wrath. In the womb, objects of wrath. It is the effect of the fall, brothers and sisters. And walking in this world apart from Christ, you will just fulfill your, the desires of your flesh and of your mind. You will continue in the path of being a son of disobedience and an object of wrath, even though you might be educated, affluent, and clean and nice and a wonderful neighbor. When you get to heaven, when you get to that entry point, when you die and you pass into judgment, it will all become very clear at that time who we are apart from Christ. May God bless each soul here to arrive at that moment cleansed by the blood of Christ. So we cannot be saved by our own strength or our own desire, nor can we demonstrate anything to God. Now get this part too. Nor can we demonstrate anything to God that makes us more or less desirable to Him than other lost souls. He doesn't, he doesn't choose to pride His grace on some people because they're a little bit more adorable or more pathetic or not quite as bad as others. No. Our salvation, brothers and sisters, is only according to the grace of God. His choosing motive rests within His eternal purposes, not within anything lovely or desirable in a fallen human being. If God's choosing were left up to you being adorable enough for Him to choose, up, to choose you, we would all be lost. Even our faith is a gift from God, we're told. Going on with Ephesians chapter 2, but God, who is rich in mercy, see that? But God... We should, we should really rejoice in, in who our Lord is and His gracious kindness to us, brothers and sisters. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us. Do you hear that? He didn't just choose us coldly uh, and, and just because He wanted to demonstrate that He can do whatever He wants. He placed His love upon us in the richness of His mercy. He chose to love us when we were the most unlovable. Going on, he says it this way, even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. You know, I remember one time, it's not in the notes, so pray for me, I'm going off script here. I remember one time when I was a kid, I was at my father's workplace, and he worked for Delta Airlines, and he worked in freight at that time and shipping. And I was there with him, and, and they had received a, this big, long package, and you guessed it, it was a coffin. And it was a body being shipped somewhere in a coffin. And I was with my dad, and I walked up to it, and the fella there opened the coffin, surprised all of us, and showed me this corpse, and I jumped back. My dad was kind of angry. He was like, he shouldn't have done that to you, son. And the, the, the guy was kind of you know, mean and just kind of having fun with me as a kid. But I'll tell you, when I saw that corpse, I didn't want to get close to it. I did not want to get close to it. Okay? And that, that, I think that serves as an illustration. Apart from God's grace, apart from the cleansing work of Christ, we are repulsive to God. Now going on. 
Even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You know, you have a place on Mount Zion right now if you're a believer in Christ. And we're there together, the heavenly Jerusalem. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And so, the effects of the fall place us all in a state where we would have no hope if God was not the initiator. If God did not initiate and save, none of us would have a hope for salvation. But He did. He did come. And in His love, He's brought us. And because of His mercy, He saved us. And it is the grace of God that has come and granted you faith if you're a Christian here today. It's the grace of God that's granted you faith to see your own sin, to see you've earned judgment, and to bring you to trust in Christ as your Savior who died for your sins. Outside of Christ, we're all spiritually dead. And what must happen is that we must be spiritually resurrected from the dead. This is divine regeneration. It is to be born again from above, as Jesus said to Nicodemus. And this idea of spiritual resurrection is seen throughout the New Testament. Listen to Christ's interaction with Nicodemus. You know, Nicodemus came to him at night. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So you must be born again from above to even perceive the kingdom of God. Going on, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So now we're talking about not just seeing the kingdom. You can't enter it either unless you're born again. So even if you could see it, without being born again, you would not enter it. It goes back to that idea of you would hate it. You'd have no appetite for God or His ways were it not for being born again from above because of His kindness. Going on. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So, the wind, not even the wind, moves arbitrarily. God is moving each molecule, causing each leaf to quiver according to His foreordained plan. None of it's arbitrary. It seems arbitrary to us. But God chooses to make the wind blow. Similarly, God chooses upon whom he will pour out his spirit unto eternal life. Now listen, this should bring you great joy. This should bring you great joy. Because if the Lord chooses us, if this is the Lord's work, all, then it can't be lost. 
If he comes and he gives the new life from heaven, he gives the presence of the Spirit, then he secures us to himself in a way that none can undo. He unites us to Jesus Christ in a uniting power that is no less sure than the divine union of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He brings us into this certain eternal fellowship with Him. His immeasurable love for His people will never decrease. His power can never be overcome. He will never leave us or forsake us. Romans 8, 38 and 39. It sounds like maybe... Studying Romans 8 carefully would be worth, worth the time, yes? If you haven't done that. I need to study more carefully for sure. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life... So what can separate us from God? That's the question before us. What can separate us from God? For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, let me ask you something. This is the one spot where a lot of people get derailed. Are you a created thing? Are you a part of what uh, Paul would consider things to come? In some regards, yes. So you're a created thing. So can you separate yourself from God? If he has bound you to himself in Christ. Oh, rejoice. Oh, rejoice. Because if you say yes, then you're lost. Because you will separate yourself from him if it's up to you. He loves us so much. When we are faithless, he is faithful. He is our loving heavenly father. And he will never leave us or forsake us. And once he holds us in his everlasting arms, by his grace... He will never let us go. The blood of His Son is too precious. But, moving on. Also, this choosing can and does, in this case, reference a more specific choosing as when, like when Christ chose out His apostles. So not only are you amongst the elect, but we'll see each one of us have a specific a specific way that God has chosen you, not just for eternal life, but to serve Him. A way for you to serve Him, like, like Saul. So God's choice, or His selection of Saul, the commentary tells us, for the task described in the next statement establishes Him in the context of Saul's encounter with the risen Jesus on the road before His arrival in Damascus as an instrument of Jesus, in analogy to the twelve, who were also chosen and sent by Jesus. And you know, it's one of those Sundays again where I didn't plan this, but you saw the liturgy reading is from Romans 1. And we're going to get to that. What did Jesus say to his apostles during the Last Supper? And this probably has both that general and specific meaning of choosing. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. So the apostles were both chosen and appointed. Romans 1, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. So he is a select instrument of the Lord, chosen unto eternal life, yes, by God's grace, yes, but also 
unto his role as the least or the last of the apostles. Listen to what Paul said about this in 1 Corinthians 15. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. So so there's the gospel message. And, And he was brought into joining the team of apostles, joining this great church that we've seen growing up in Jerusalem. But God's not limited. God can pick an apostle from anywhere he wants to. And he's done that. He does that in Saul's life. Now going on with um, Paul from 1 Corinthians 15. And that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve, and that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. And that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, then last of all he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. So to be an apostle, you had to be an eyewitness of Christ's resurrection. And Paul was. He saw him alive on the road to Damascus. And, And other times probably as well, as we'll see through his life. So let's look at this idea of the word vessel. This word brings to us the concept of a man of quality, a chosen instrument. It teaches us that Saul was to be, as it were, held in Christ's hand as Christ's instrument to bring salvation to the Gentiles and to the Jews and even to kings, even to political rulers. Saul will not be controlling himself as God's chosen instrument. So when you think of instrument, think of Jesus holding Saul in his hand. The word instrument does show that, that men can do nothing save in as much as God uses their industry at his pleasure. This is Calvin. For if we be instruments, he alone is the author. The force and power to do is his power alone. And that which Christ speaks in this place of Paul applies to all men, both one and other. Therefore, how stoutly soever every man labor and how carefully soever he behave himself in his duty, yet there is no cause why he should challenge to himself any part of praise. So the same grace that we rejoice in that saves us is the same grace that equips us and specially designs us for the task to which our master calls us. So we can take credit for none of it. What do you have that you did not receive from God? Also, this same word vessel points to Saul's special design for this work. He's a specially carefully crafted instrument in God's hand. And, you know, that's how God works. Think of snowflakes, right? In the good way. He makes each of us individually suited for the task that He calls us to. He's made, he doesn't make any mistakes. Does God make any mistakes? Little ones. My, my little children. Does God make any mistakes? No. He has perfectly created you for His plan for you to bring Him the most glory. Old men, old women, does God make any mistakes? No, He does not. He's perfectly crafted you for the calling He has upon your life. Commentary says He is designed, and this is about Saul, for eminent services and for eminent sufferings. 
we'll see this in Saul's life as we proceed through the book of Acts and as we consider some of his writings and his epistles. He indeed, he indeed was an eminent servant who did suffer much for the name of Christ. So, what is his service? He's an apostle, and Jesus describes it this way. He is to bear Christ's name. The text says, to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. Let's consider this together. You see, not only was Saul chosen unto eternal life by God's grace, as we've discussed, but also he was chosen unto eminent service to God as an apostle. He was selected as a choice instrument, specially designed to bear the name of Christ before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. Many of you probably know the history of Saul's upbringing as a faithful, likely a faithful Pharisee family, working hard to serve the Lord, but deceived, tricked, sat at the feet of Gamaliel, one of the best known teachers and rabbis of the time, knew the old covenant writings, knew the old covenant writings. He just needed to understand that they applied to Jesus. So what about this idea of bearing my name? This is to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. We've read that one example of it already. We'll see numerous examples of of Paul declaring Christ's name throughout his ministry, just like the other apostles were called to do. Commentary says, The purpose of Saul's life and work as Jesus' instrument is to proclaim the message of Jesus. This expression, my name, stands for Jesus and for the proclamation of the good news of Jesus as Israel's Messiah and Savior. And and we're going to get to this, but he was always emphasizing going to the Jews first in the synagogues, telling them that Jesus is their Messiah. And then they would usually reject him and it would spill over, and then he would plant these churches amongst these Gentile locations. Back to the commentary. The word carry means here to confess in a missionary context. Saul will acknowledge and proclaim Jesus as risen and exalted Messiah, Savior, and Lord. So he was arresting people who would not submit to the commandment to not preach in Jesus' name. And now that's all he does. Things have changed. Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. What is that phrase? We're going to look at each one individually, but first let's consider that phrase as a whole. Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. Saul will work and participate in carrying the gospel to all people, both Jew and Gentile, both paupers and princes. And the gospel will be preached to the entire known world, even in Paul's lifetime. Did you know that? Did you know that the gospel was preached to the entire known world, even in Paul's lifetime? How do I know this? I've got a great history book, right? It's called the Bible. Right here in the Bible, Paul tells us. Colossians 1, verses 3 through 6. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, here it is, which has come to you as it has also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. So by this point, by the time that he wrote to the church at Colossae, the gospel, the text says, has come to all the world and is bearing fruit in all the world. And then in verse 123, 
He says it another way in Colossians. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, and here it is, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Note the past tense. Was preached to every creature under heaven. So, Paul was called to be a participant in the gospel going to the whole known world. And as we discussed in Matthew 24, well, from Luke 21 and also Matthew 24, that the Olivet Discourse, there were things that Jesus said were going to take place before this great war and before this great tribulation. And one of them was the gospel going to the whole world. Now, one at a time. Gentiles. You all know what those are. Look around. <laughs> We've got a room full of them, right? Foreign nations not worshiping the true God. Pagans. Those outside of Israel. Okay? Now, note that this is listed first, and it's probably emphasizing Saul's future ministry as the apostle to the Gentiles. Romans eleven thirteen. For I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles. I magnify mine office. So, Saul became Paul, became the apostle of the Gentiles, and a major, major preacher and church planter amongst the Gentiles. We'll see throughout the book of Acts that Paul's habit is to go to the synagogues first, like Jesus did. But, sadly, routinely, the gospel is rejected by the local Jews and Jewish leadership, and so then Paul routinely would go and focus his ministry on the Gentiles and those Jews who did believe, who are responding in faith to the gospel. And it would end up with a church, most of the time, being planted in that area. But that church did not go and occupy the synagogue. It was elsewhere. The Jews rejected the gospel. Now, during his journeys recorded in Acts, Paul will preach the gospel and or plant churches in Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derbe. That's in Galatia. That's southern... uh, from east to west, southern Turkey of today, Philippi, Corinth, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, Ephesus, Colossae, Troas, and other places probably, the gospel goes out to the Gentile world via Paul. So he was the apostle to the Gentiles. Imminent service. A totally different life than he had planned. The text says you'll also take Christ's name to kings. This is a leader of the people, a prince, a commander, a lord of the land. And as we'll see in these texts that I'll quote for you, it is primarily used regarding political leaders. Jesse begat David the king, and David begat, and David the king begat Solomon. That's the word king. Then Matthew 2, 1, Jesus having been born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. So there's that same word, Herod is a king. And then Matthew 2, 2, Jesus is this same kind of king, whereas he was born king of the Jews. For we saw his star in the east, and we came to bow to him. Matthew ten eighteen, this is when Jesus sent out the twelve. Listen to what he said. You will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. So Jesus told them beforehand that this will be happening to them. And we're going to see it in Paul's life as well. Now this is kind of an extended quote from Acts 26, but it's beautiful. It brings in so much of what we've already discussed about Saul and about his conversion, and it's him talking to King Agrippa. Then Agrippa said to Paul, You are permitted to speak for yourself, 
So Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself. I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I am accused of by the Jews, especially because you are expert in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. To this promise our twelve tribes, earnestly serving God night and day, hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Okay, so now he's testifying to the gospel before kings. Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. And while thus occupied, as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O king, along the road I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we all had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So in making his defense, he's preaching the gospel. He's sharing with this king. Imagine this setting. He's talking to the king of that land. Going on, he says, Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and then to the Gentiles, that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. For these reasons, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand, witnessing both to small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, that the Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. So there it is. He's completing his ministry, talking to King Agrippa. We'll, of course, get to that text and we'll look at it more carefully when we get there. Now, Paul appealed to Caesar later in Acts. And church history reports that Paul also carried Christ's gospel to the Roman emperor, to Nero. Acts 25.11 says, If there's nothing of these things of which these men accuse me, no one can deliver me to them. I appeal to Caesar. And then in Acts 28, he says again, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar. So we know from Scripture that he was on his way to Caesar. Commentary says he must bear Christ's name, must bear witness to it before kings, King Agrippa, and Caesar himself. But he also preached to the Jews. And even though he was the preacher to the Gentiles, and even though he preached to kings, his heart was with his people. While he would end up being this great apostle to the Gentiles, bringing the gospel to the whole known world, he 
He never stopped preaching the gospel to his own people. And he loved them so much. And as we'll see, he almost always began his preaching at the local synagogue. He went to the Jews first. Listen to his love for the Jewish people. I can't help but wonder and and speculate, where were his mom and dad? His brothers and sisters, his family members, his close friends that he grew up in Judaism with in Tarsus. Romans 9, 1-5. I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. Great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh. He's wishing that he could be accursed for them. So yes, while his ministry focused on the Gentiles and he preached to kings, don't forget that his heart was always for his people. He always wanted to see the gospel take root amongst the Jews. What about his suffering? As a result of his faithfulness to Christ, he would go through much suffering. The text says, I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. We need a good theology of suffering, brothers and sisters. In today's world of great comfort, we need this. So Saul's been selected by God to eternal life, all by grace. He's been chosen by Jesus to be one of his apostles, to bear his message of salvation to Gentiles and kings and Jews, to the whole world. And in this process, it is not a cakewalk for him, nor will it be for us. Saul will meet resistance on every front and he will suffer in many, many ways. Physically, emotionally, spiritually, he will be poured out like a drink offering. But most importantly, this suffering will be for the sake of Christ. And that's what I hope that as a result of today's sermon, all of us will really consider our own suffering. And is it for the sake of Christ? Listen to Paul describe his sufferings in 2 Corinthians. About 23 years after his conversion, it's estimated this was written in AD 56. Listen to what he says about his suffering, the things that he's been through. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors, more abundant. In stripes, above measure. I don't think he's just using hyperbole here. In stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. There's there's some commentaries who believe Paul was resurrected throughout the course of his ministry, that he did indeed die a few times and was brought back to life to continue, continue his ministry. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods Once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeys, often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold 
and nakedness, besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. We haven't really seen anything, have we? Church history reports that Paul was martyred by the Roman emperor. According to church tradition, the Romans martyred Paul, departed an example of patient endurance, and he's said to suffer martyrdom under Nero, according to Origen. Witnessing to Jesus can be costly, and ironically, think about it, Saul receives as much as he gave. He persecuted others unto death, did he not? And he was persecuted unto death as well. But note, brothers and sisters, please, Paul's suffering is for the sake of Christ. Whether it's direct persecution, which he mentions, or just the dangers and the trials and the soul weariness associated with that work. He suffers for the sake of Christ's name. And in this, Paul develops a beautiful personal but universalized theology of suffering for us Christians. It is a part of God's plan to sanctify us and to bring us closer to Him as we share in His sufferings and become more like Him. Now we're 45 minutes into this, and if I'd have done a better job, wouldn't be so far into this, but I I pray you will buckle up and pay attention to this, this portion of the sermon. Suffering for Christ's name is also to join in the fellowship of His suffering. And the only way, brothers and sisters, into this fellowship, into this kind of nearness to Christ, is to suffer for His name. And it's also called being conformed to His death. Listen to what Paul wrote in AD 58, about about 25 years after his conversion. So he suffered. And here's what he has to say. He's teaching the church there, the Philippians, about suffering, and we can learn as well. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. See, there's the balance. There's the balance. The excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. You see, fellowship is a sweet thing. We're going to have some great fellowship today together. Uh, we're, going to, we're doing it now. We're going to continue to enjoy fellowship at the Lord's table. And we're going to have a wonderful meal together afterwards. The Lord brings this word fellowship before our eyes so that we have the right perspective on suffering. Rejoice, we are told by Jesus Christ, when we are persecuted. When we go through persecution for His namesake, with faith towards Him, we get to know Him in ways otherwise unattainable. 
Next. Suffering for his name is to be brought into the sanctification process. When we suffer for his name, we are brought into the sanctification process. And without this kind of suffering, we miss out on this kind of sanctification. Suffering for Christ's name is indispensable to this kind of sanctification. About 24 years after he became a Christian, he wrote in Romans 5, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in justification and peace with God and never-ending access to our Lord and His favor. We rejoice in the gospel. We rejoice in being chosen and brought into His grace. But there's more to rejoice for. Paul's trying to teach the Romans this. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Paul is is exerting himself to get this message across to the Romans. So beyond just rejoicing in salvation, do you rejoice in your suffering? Because we can do that. If it's for His name, if it's for Him especially, knowing that it takes us into this process of patience, being made like Him, we're gentled, and we're granted perseverance. We don't know how long the suffering will last. He does. And He grants us patience, perseverance. And in this waiting for God, this is where we find growth in Christ-like character, brothers and sisters. You don't put this one in the microwave. That's not how it works. It's a smoking. It's a smoking. It's a long cook that we go through. Patience. Perseverance. That's where the growth in Christ-like character, the aroma of Jesus is worked into us. And in that, the hope, that anchor, that anchor in Christ becomes more and more real to us, not just an idea. And the greatest joy of all is that in this, God pours his love into your heart. Again, to where it becomes way more than just an idea. But that your soul is brought into the experience of God's love for you. This is the fellowship of sharing in his suffering. And we have comfort as well. That's another major point to Paul's theology, to biblical theology of suffering. We're not alone. The Lord doesn't take us through this capriciously or arbitrarily. And listen, any kind of suffering can be redeemed by God, even suffering that you bring on yourself by your own sin. You think that's outside of His sovereign will? That you surprised Him with your own sin? Of course not. He doesn't leave us. He comforts us. And again in 2 Corinthians, Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, And God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Do you see that? The sufferings of Christ 
abound in us. We're, Jesus shares in our sufferings. When we are suffering in faith towards Him, He is suffering with us. It's another important point of comfort to know that we're not alone and that our Savior loves us. When you love someone and you see them suffering, you suffer too, don't you? Yeah. And our Savior suffers when we, His beloved, suffer. All right, now finally, we have to be careful though. Do not be deceived. We can sometimes play the martyr and make ourselves out to be suffering for Christ when we're just suffering because of our own sin or or perhaps because of something that has nothing to do with identifying with Christ. And this is what Peter is getting at in 1 Peter chapter 4. And this is about A.D. 65. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. You see, Peter and Paul, they're preaching the same message, aren't they? They know the same Savior. They know the the sufferings of Jesus. And they're telling us about it. That when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. For the, spirit of glory and God, for the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Hmm. On their part he is blasphemed, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, as a busybody in other people's matters, right? So that's the warning from, from Peter. Don't, you know, if you're a busybody and somebody gets on to you and you say, oh, I'm suffering for Christ's name, no. No, that's not how it works. But, you know, we want to defend ourselves. We all want to make ourselves out to be the martyr in our flesh. To deceive ourselves. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God in this matter. Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to Him in doing good as to a faithful Creator. So if you're suffering as a Christian for for doing good, for bearing Christ's name, do not be ashamed. There will be those efforts to shame you and to make you have guilt. No, do not be ashamed if you suffer for Christ's name. Be ashamed if you suffer for being a busybody or an evildoer. Be ashamed and repent like a good Christian. Right? You see, you can respond to your own sin like a Christian too. Okay, so now some questions uh, quickly to bring it home. And I hope that we'll reflect on these things and each of us will ponder these things in regard to our own lives. So, look at your own life. Consider your own history with sin. You've sinned. You know you've sinned. You know what the sin patterns are in your life to some extent. You know where you struggle. Let me ask you this. Do you think you'd be able to see that sin on your own? Would you even be aware of it? Maybe. You might have a sense that something's not right. Like, what's that smell? You know, you might sense it. But would you hate it on your own? Would you hate your sin on your own? Or or would you think you might coddle it and protect it? I mean, see, these these are ways that you can personally see in your own life the way that God has proven to you in your own life the truth of sovereign grace. In your own life, He's proven it to you. 
Now, that's not what makes it true. It's true because God's Word says so. But you have experienced it if you're a Christian. Let me have, maybe you wouldn't, maybe you would find your sin distasteful, maybe a little bit. Maybe you might see it and be like, oh, I need to quit this. You know, whatever, go join AA or something like that, right? But would you go on to agree that you have offended the God and maker of the world who gave you breath and that you have earned his judgment and his wrath forever and ever? Without end. No. Because, see, we couldn't get to that on our own. We have to be opened up to who God is to get a sense of, of our sin and, and how grievous, how loathsome, how filthy the exceeding sinfulness of sin like we prayed today. How about this? Even if you could get to some sense that there's a God because you look at creation and that your sin is out of order and, wow, you might be in trouble, do you think you could actually turn away from it on your own and believe in His mercy and run to Him on your own? Do you see that in your life? Do you see that kind of humbled helplessness in your own life apart from God working in you? That's, that's not what happened in my life. I was not looking for God. And He stormed my soul with His Spirit and showed me that I deserved His wrath and gave me a, a hatred for sin that I never had before. How about this? Would you have turned to God and cried out to Him in the midst of this? Would you have believed or sought His mercy? Would you have had any sense of God becoming a baby and putting on flesh and going to a cross to die for you? The God of the universe? The creator of the universe? Would you believe that on your own? Would you marvel and, and, and wonder and exult in His resurrection? Would you believe that all the forces of darkness have been defeated? Would you believe that? Would you have hope? Would you rise up? With a victorious mindset, having once been caught in your sin, would this be true of you? Would you worship Him? Would you be here for the explicit purpose of praising Him and giving Him thanks and lifting your soul up to Him with His people? Crying out to Him to have His way with the world? Would that be? Or would you be at home sleeping and waiting for the football game? Or whatever. All right, next. Have you been consecrated to his service? Is your life for the sake of his name? Get your schedule, get your checkbook, look at everything going on, the words, the actions, the things you're doing. Is your life consecrated unto him? Would you be able to convince yourself of that if you were to look back through your schedule and the way you're spending your money, the way you're spending your time, the things you say, the things you do. We all, we all want to ask ourselves these questions and look to the Lord to help us grow. Consecration is not perfection. Okay? It's about direction. Right? Is that the direction you're going in to serve Him? Do you have a sense of Christ's calling upon your life? The guidance of His voice upon you and the direction that you're to be going, or are you still unsure of his plan for you as his servant? Right? So some of the young adults here, maybe some of the older adults here too, certainly the children, you have, to, you have this to learn. 
God's crafting of you, especially crafting you the gifts, the talents, the things that He's given you, the loves, the passions, the abilities that He's given to you, and then leading you into the path of service that He has for you. And not to say that there's only one, but He does take us on a path of calling and teach us and help us. Do you see that some are called to preach Christ to political rulers? So part of this needs to just pause and reflect on that. Because in today's world, you're going to be taught that, you know, politics doesn't really matter, or maybe it should be ignored, maybe you should have nothing to do with it. But the Lord Jesus Christ is the King of kings. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth, and they're all called to submit to Him. And so there should be some who are called to preach Christ to rulers, to political rulers, to inform them of their duty before Christ and let them know that they will be judged according to whether they did their job as a political ruler according to His Word and call them to repent and to serve Him. Next. Do you suffer because of your love and obedience to Christ? Have you been through that? Have you been persecuted? How about just suffering in general? Maybe even self-induced suffering. Let's just bring it all together. How do you deal with this? What is your theology of suffering? The Lord would have us to consider Christ, the way He behaved on His way to the cross, and the way He approached the suffering that He knew was coming His way. The Lord would have us consider Paul and the life that he lived, and we're going to be seeing it as we continue through the book of Acts. When you look at the calling on your life, the path of service to Christ, and the likely suffering that will come your way as a result of it, or just as a result of being a sinner, or just as a result of being around sinners, being in a fallen world with sickness, are you prepared to suffer? I think if you look to the cross, consider Christ and His suffering for you, you consider God's great love for you, you consider that as you suffer, your Lord suffers, and as you look to Him to comfort you, He will grant you to be sanctified and to share in fellowship of suffering, and to know Him far more deeply, and to be strengthened unto further service even in the face of persecution. It's called being anti-fragile in worldly worldly terms. Cut off one head, two grow back. Right? That's, That's what it means for Christians to be persecuted. Right? You mess with us when we're doing His will and we press into Him more deeply and we come back more committed to love you, more committed to serve you, more committed to share the gospel, more committed to lay down our lives for Him. And, and knowing Him better. Gaining patience and perseverance and Christ-like character and this hope and this experience of His love along the way. And He's making us into those who love Him more and whose relationships demonstrate even greater and greater glory as we go through this world together. Praise be to God. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your great and glorious work of sovereign grace and the work of Saul of Tarsus, shining your light from heaven, 
He fell down and blinded him. And you gave him life from heaven that he could never give himself. And you called him to this work of being an apostle. And you took him through great suffering. Lord, we rejoice in how he demonstrates to us how to take up the cross. How to look to Christ and trust in Christ. How to be consecrated unto your service. And how to be prepared and armed to suffer. May this be true of us, Lord. Faithful to you to the end by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.